hello, everybody. Welcome to the Good Theology Podcast, where you get to hang out with myself and the one and only David Campbell for about an hour each week, and hope you are all doing wonderfully today. Thank you for listening to our podcast. We appreciate it, and uh, we always love it when people spread the word, and uh, it's, a, it's a growing community, which we're very grateful for. As always, uh, if you feel so inclined, you can give us five stars on wherever you listen to your podcasts. You can like us on YouTube, all that good stuff. We greatly appreciate it. David and I began a conversation last week around Nancy Piercy's book, Love Thy Body, which uh, I read a couple of years ago and thought it would be a cool companion to our conversation over the course of the summer. And so uh, we're going to be going through that chapter by chapter. Last week, we took care of uh, chapter one and the introduction. And today we're going to be looking at chapter two. Let's just catch everybody up to speed. David, in your own words, what would you say is the premise of Nancy's book here? Well, I'm, I'm reading it as I go along. So you're more familiar with it than I am, but mm-hmm. um, she's, making the, the, she's making the case that our culture and our worldview has uh, brought a division between the mind and the body. I'll just put it yeah. that way. Mm-hmm. Uh, and has located value in the mind. And we'll see what that means in terms of how it plays out regarding abortion uh, as Nancy unfolds that for us. Um, and puts a low or immaterial value on the body. Mm-hmm. Uh, even though our society sort of says, do what you want with your body. Actually, she points out rightly that that does not reflect a high view of the body. It reflects a very low view of the body. And I, uh, my point is that it takes us, because nothing new under the sun, it takes us right back to uh, Plato and uh, a culture where uh, body was devalued in that same way. And so you can have brilliant philosophers sitting around a table uh, sharing all their ideas in, in Plato's literature and they're sexually abusing young boys at the same time and it's right there in the literature and they don't see anything wrong with it uh-huh. uh, because what you do with the body is immaterial. Uh, that's a bad pun, immaterial, but what you do with the body is irrelevant. It is of no, it doesn't matter. You can do what you want. Uh-huh. Um, value is in your mind and for them to have lofty conceptions of what life means and what reality means and that type of thing, that's, that's the highest virtue. Uh, that's a very virtuous thing. Uh, and, and that, of course, is totally contradictory to biblical revelation, which views uh, people as, in a holistic way, uh, soul, spirit, and body are all intertwined. And what we do with our body is an expression of uh, where our heart is at. And so, uh, uh, and, and the Bible puts a very high view on the body because Judeo-Christianity believes in the resurrection of the body, which no other religion or philosophy that has ever existed does. So <laughs> we're unique in that sense. 
But the fact that we believe that we will receive a glorified body and that Jesus uh, w was made incarnate um, in the flesh, God became flesh. You couldn't put a higher value on the body than, than the incarnation. We mm -hmm. spent a few weeks talking about that in our mm -hmm. previous book. Um, and then at the end of time, we'll receive a resurrected body. So for Christians, what you do with the, the body is very significant. It has value and it is to be used to the glory of God. So it has a completely different philosophy than, in the, than we see in the world around us. And that's the point she's making, which I've said in a very long-winded probably way, but you asked. I certainly did. And the people want to hear. Yeah, I think uh, that's a very thorough and accurate description of what's going on in the book. She is a, a student or former disciple of Francis Schaeffer who popularized this uh, upper story, lower story dualism that goes on in secular culture that you have kind of publicly accepted facts on the lower story. These are things that can come into public discourse. This is what we can agree upon and live by as, a, you know, objective standards. And then you have uh, the upper story, which is privatized beliefs, values, morals. Uh, certain re certainly religion falls into uh, that upper story in this dualistic worldview. And she is essentially applying that, or I would say she's identifying how that worldview has played out in right. the if view can, of... If, if, if I can just sort of interject, yeah. Schaefer's lower story was the realm of what can be scientifically provable or attained through your five senses. <laughs> and and not, he's not agreeing with that. He's just saying... He's pointing it out. That's where modern culture, since the Enlightenment has, has taken us, that, that physical reality um, is, is a matter of, uh, you know, what we can prove and, and, and how we prove it is with our five senses. And so, uh, that's materialism. Uh, but what happens is that people are confronted with materialism, which is the logical result of, you know, a lot of the phil philosophical thinking of the last 300 years, you completely destroy anything other than the material realm. And so in, re in rebellion against that, various people rise up and say, no, there's got to be some kind of um, what Schaefer calls upper story. There's got to <laughs> be something unprovable but real uh, that deals with feelings and emotions and values and so on. And, uh, and this is where we get into what Nancy Piercy identifies as personhood theory. Um, so there's a realm of making judgments with our mind that is not actually provable or related to the material world. And of course, it's all contradictory because the philosophy behind it also, uh, you know, leads to only one conclusion, that all we are is a bunch of atoms. But people <laughs> can't accept that, understandably. But instead of accepting the Judeo-Christian viewpoint, which is internally coherent. And why it's coherent is because it says that God made us, God is a supernatural personal creator, and he made us in his image. Perfect. So that uh, who we are in terms of our thoughts and mind and spirit uh, is 
is very real. Uh, and it comes from the same God that made the material world. So Christianity is integrated. And we have a, a reason for, for pointing beyond because we feel that actually creation as it exists uh, points to, uh, clearly points to the existence of a personal creator. And it's not, and that's a rational point of view. And I said last week, even Stephen Hawking in his PhD work admitted that that was the case. In his popular work, he couldn't take it. And he said, no, it, 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 you know, it's all come from aliens. And uh, so we're living in this irrational world where people are trying to create something of, that is above and beyond just the material that they see before them. And we're going to see how this plays out in terms of abortion. Before we get there, I'm interested in what seems to be a 360-degree cycle that we have uh, gone through. You mentioned in the ancient world amongst philosophers like Plato uh, how they held to not the same but a you know, similar view of the body, of the material world. Um, we talked a little bit about Gnosticism last week. How is it that... Um, well, let me ask the question this way, I suppose. Is it an inevitable thing that that's where we will wind up in our beliefs and our values apart from Judeo-Christianity? Because obviously um, you have that as the, the commonly accepted belief, and then you have the Christian era, and then now you're in this post-Christian moment, and it seems we come full circle. Well, of course, Plato lived before, and Socrates, his teacher, lived before, well before the time of, of Jesus, and mm -hmm. they wouldn't have been familiar with Judaic thought at all. Right. Um, so they're operating in the blind, you know, at, at where Paul says in Romans that um, God's ex, uh, existence is, is reality, is manifest in his creation. That's where they're at. So we have to cut them a bit of slack. And basically, Plato is looking for some sense of divinity, He's trying to find it. Um, and the world of the Greek gods doesn't satisfy him for good reason, because the Greek gods were glorified human individuals with human characteristics. Very, they cheated on each other. They fornicated. They, you know, slept around. They, you couldn't count on them. They betray you, betray each other. And so, and he thought that was a bunch of, nonsense anyway. The whole thing was mythology. It's just that he couldn't say it. It'd be careful not to say it exactly that way or else he would have got lynched. So Plato kind of bypasses the level of the Greek gods and he's searching for something else because he knows that, there, that reality is more than what you can just access with your five senses. And so he develops this concept of what he calls the forms, which is... Um, ideal things like the good mm -hmm. so he personalizes the idea of the good <laughs> and whereas we would see the good is actually a characteristic of god <laughs> plato didn't have that revelation or understanding but he said there's something out there he called the good which is transcendent um and he kind of uh i'm not a, a um an authority on Plato, so I'm going to trade carefully. But he, 
he do, he isn't entirely consistent in his dialogue. Sometimes, you know, I think he's more there. There are parts of him where he's looking for some kind of personal creator, and there are parts of it where he just has these this idealistic concept of the good. But th this thing is very much a transcendent reality. It exists independent of the present world. Um, so he's he's kind of reaching toward that. But what he's rebelling against is the idea. What he's rebelling against is the idea that the material world is all there is. But unfortunately, in the process of it, because he didn't have a biblical understanding, he downgraded the physical level and glorified the, uh, you know, and, and the, 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 um, the level of the uh, mind. And the reason it was the mind is because he's reaching out using his mind to try to grasp what are these supernatural realities beyond the, the, the present world. Uh, and, and in the process, uh, you know, one of the consequences of that was that to some extent, what you do with your body, I'm not, I'm not saying that he would have promoted going around killing people or even being dishonest or whatever, but right. it's just that some things like in the realm of sexuality, he didn't see anything wrong at all <laughs> with having sex with boys. Uh, and that was partly a reflection of Athenian culture, uh, <laughs> where it was the custom for men to have sex with men until they got married when they started having sex with women. Uh, that That's how it was. And Plato just didn't have a conscience about that. <laughs> so that's a, it's a kind of a weird world that they lived in. Uh, but he's seeking for something, but not really finding it. It seems to me from just a really, like, when you when you get down to brass tacks, if you're experiencing the world as we experience it, which is in the midst of what Christians would call fallenness, that means you're going to endure a whole heap of suffering in life. And so if you're going to think about those, about your experience in any kind of, in any kind of sense that's laced with teleology, a direction where, where, where can we try to steer this ship or where is it headed? You have a couple of different options. You have perfectibility. So maybe you go the route of something like a, a, a humanistic utopian vision, like a Marxism or something along those lines, or you have escapism. And you, you have a, a certain sense that there's, that this world is all but lost. And the best thing we can hope for is to escape into some immaterial form. And there's a lot of that in the religious world as well, where, uh, we're trying mm -hmm. to escape the physical. And it seems because, to me like when the... humans are left to their philosophical, uh, devices, those are the two options that they're going to come up with again and again. And what makes Christianity so ye so, so unique is that he is the transcendent God who was also imminent and his imminence is, is proven and shown, especially through Christ, the incarnation, as you say. Yeah. And, and Plato wasn't alone. The ancient Greeks weren't alone. I mean, it's, it's a lot of similarities in Hinduism and, and Buddhism uh, as well. They're, they're trying to escape or that 
another ancient philosophy was Stoicism. And the Stoics didn't really believe this was in anything else than the material world around them. And you couldn't really do anything about it, about what was going to happen to you. So you just develop this inner resolve and try to withdraw it and in your mind, you know, I, I don't know how they ever did it. I can't imagine they were very successful, but they had the idea that you could kind of withdraw into your mind and all the, you know, ups and downs of life somehow wouldn't affect you, which is why we call somebody a stoic today. Um, so, you know, all these things were going on, but Nancy Piercy through and Francis Schaeffer, they're trying to, uh, or Francis Schaeffer kind of traced what I would say was the reintroduction of ancient Greek thought, which had been kind of conquered by uh -huh. Christianity, the spread of Christianity in Europe. It started coming back in again. With which I guess brings me back to that question is like, that seems to be an inevitable thing when you try to put Christianity up into that upper story, it, it is inevitable that, that, that things like the human body or, or the physical world in general are going to be seen as negotiable in terms of value. Well, yes, Christianity wasn't put into another story. It was just ejected entirely. Sure. And rejected entirely. And, and, it, it's, it, and so what, what are you left with? Well, what you're left with is what there was before. That's well, let me next. just say one thing, though. Like, yep. it, it was put into the upper story in the sense that the public world is saying it's fine for you to have these beliefs. You know, we're not going to eject you necessarily. We just don't want you to bring them into the public conversation. And therein lies the issue is that we actually can't have a coherent understanding of the world and a coherent understanding of what makes for a healthy society and culture without bringing Christianity into the conversation. Otherwise, we are constantly living at odds and dissonance with reality. So they would say that yes. they haven't ejected it. They've just put it into that upper story. And, you know, I won't bring in my personal values. You don't bring in yours. Well, that's postmodernism. Yeah. Yes. That's yes. postmodernism. And the problem that we have as Christians is we follow the man that said, you'll know the truth. You know, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And you'll know the truth, and the truth will set you free. So it's not an option for Christians to to. Check their faith at the, and at the within door. our own little bubble when God has called us to take the truth of Christ out into the world. So inevitably there's conflict. Yeah. So here's a uh, maybe an interesting kind of moment to pull in a quote from, from Nancy Piercy uh, in chapter two, which is entitled The Joy of Death. And this uh, chapter is dedicated to the topic of abortion. She says here, she says, people often claim that laws legalizing abortion are neutral. The idea is that since no one agrees when life begins, the state should remain neutral by permitting abortion. But laws permitting abortion are not neutral. They express personhood theory, which is a substantive philosophy excluding babies in the womb from constitutional protection. In the Supreme Court's Roe v. Wade ruling, Justice Harry Blackman asserted point blank that the unborn baby is not a person. Quote, the word person, as used in the 14th Amendment, does not include the unborn, close quote. If the fetus were recognized as a person, he acknowledged, then abortion would necessarily be illegal, quote. If the suggestion of personhood is established, the fetus's right to life would be guaranteed, close quote. By legalizing abortion, then, the Supreme Court did not remain neutral. Instead, it established personhood theory with its two-story body-person dualism as the law of the land. 
So essentially what she's saying is it's actually impossible for us to remain value neutral. Uh, and in fact, if we were going to take just the scientific position, we would have to confess that life begins at conception. That's when the fetus receives the DNA from the dad and from the mom. And uh, is it, it's, its direction is determined from that moment on. All it needs is, is time to develop. And, and it doesn't need anything outside of itself. Nothing, no other ingredient needs to be added uh, other than uh, to remain in the womb of the mother and um, the support that comes with that. So she's saying scientifically life begins at conception. But when we live in this dualistic worldview where uh, the immaterial is one thing and the material is another thing, uh, that people are ultimately, you know, some negotiable threshold of consciousness or personal awareness, that means that we can treat the body uh, however we deem fit. And here we've decided to treat the unborn body with not very much respect at all in many instances. Yeah, so the, the, this idea of personhood, apart from the body, is an invention. And my <laughs> guess is without researching the legal background, that it was an invention uh, that was hatched in order to justify abortion. Because I don't think anyone ever prior to, you know, the 1960s or whatever, thought that, <laughs> you, that, that unborn children were not human or not people. And the distinction between a body and a person, because... Personhood theory is taken, when taken to the extreme, you know, you can have a baby that was already born, but maybe was, uh, you know, had a genetic issue or something like that. Well, that's yeah. not well, a person. What, what, what determines a person? Is it, well, according, it, it, to, uh, according to the pro-abortion uh, writers, Nancy Piercy quotes, it's whatever uh, you decide. the mother feels like. Uh, you know, she's the one that that ultimately decides her opinion. Um, and she quotes, these people trumps everything else. So, uh, and of course, you know, that this is a devastating because it's the same idea that's behind uh, euthanasia. And, uh, and it, it really is the same sphere of ideas that was behind modern eugenics and mm -hmm. Planned Parenthood uh, and Nazism, mm -hmm. where, you know, you take people who are low, in your opinion, or in society's opinion, low-grade human beings, which could mm -hmm. be Jewish people, and you kill them because they're not persons in the proper sense. The, the, the consequences of this are catastrophic, but people don't think about it. All they all they can think about is well, all you know, the 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 baby in the womb isn't really a person. They just think of it as you know a piece of tissue or whatever, even though they know. And of course, this has been a major development in recent years through ultrasound technology and and all mm -hmm. this kind of thing. And, and and we have a very clear understanding, much clear understanding now of the life that that goes on within the womb, even early stage. But it's just a philosophical, in spite of the scientific evidence, um, that that is a living entity, a human being, or whatever, how you define it, uh, somehow it's not conceived to be a person. 
And um, it really is just a device. It, it's, it's something, it's an invention that enables abortion. Mm-hmm. If someone decides they want to abort their child, they're justified in doing it because, well, heck, it's not a person yet. But that's a question that you can't, you know, what is a person? And nobody's been able to come up with a definition of what is a person. The Supreme Court justice, when he said that's not what, you know, what the uh, American Constitution meant, well, that's a load of baloney because the people that wrote the American Constitution perfectly well believe and clearly believed that unborn children were were human beings. They they absolutely believe that. So he's he's just cha- arbitrarily changed the definition to suit his own philosophy and pronounce that an unborn child isn't a person. Well, that that doesn't solve anything. Who is a person? No one's been able to define it. That's the problem. And, uh, and you know, eugenics, which is, uh, we'll only, we'll, we'll sort of only have the children born into this world that are absolutely taught quality, and we'll kill everybody else off. Margaret Sanger, was was in that boat. She was the founder of Planned Parenthood. She was a very nasty person, who 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 believed in and and she was inspiration for Hitler and the Nazis, as they they killed off homosexuals, they killed off Jews, they killed off you know gypsies, they killed off anybody or um, um, you know de- developmentally han- developmentally or physically handicapped people, anyone that they that wasn't part of the quote unquote master race. And so for Hitler, the master race was were the only people that were really people. Um, so you just draw a straight line over to the to the modern abortion movement and you can draw the conclusions for yourself. It's mm-hmm. horrifying. And it is absolutely horrifying. It seems genuinely impossible to argue for abortion in any kind of logical way when you just sit with the facts. You and then and she quotes you know a handful of people who've who have been willing to just say what abortion is. I mean, she opens this chapter quoting a woman named Antonia Antonia Senior, a British journalist who had always firmly supported abortion, and then she says, "Then came my own baby, and everything changed. My moral certainty," she said, "about abortion is wavering. My absolutist position is under siege." And then Nancy goes on to say that eventually this young journalist hardened back to her absolutist support for abortion. Yet surprisingly, she continued to acknowledge that life begins at conception. My daughter, quote, was formed at conception, she writes. Any other conclusion is a convenient lie that we on the pro-choice side of the debate tell ourselves to make us feel better about the action of taking a life. She concludes, quote, yes, abortion is killing, but it's the lesser evil, close quote. Yes, and when course, you what's the greater evil? The greater evil is the convenience, the economic convenience of the parents mm-hmm. or whether they feel like having a, a baby or not. And when you say that is a greater good than someone's human life, the f- entire foundation of our society is destroyed. Absolutely. Can, why not? You know, I mean, is it any wonder that people are running into shopping malls and into schools and killing people? Because... The whole foundation of respect for life has been undermined in our culture. And um, so people don't have a respect and a, an appreciation of life. And when 
uh, that happens, then, as I said, the foundation for society becomes unglued. <laughs> and I'm not saying, you know, I'm not wading into sort of gun control and that type of issue. I'm just saying that there is a, when there is less respect for life, then you can expect far more violence in <laughs> society because people just don't care anymore. They're hardened and insensitive. Yeah. And we end up having to assign arbitrary lines in the sand as to what qualifies as a life worth protecting and a life worth living. And ultimately, the people with the most power are the ones who are going to be able to draw those lines. Well, that's what it comes down to, you see. Uh, and I've always argued that it's might versus right. And of course, that's Hitler. That's Nietzsche, who is Hitler's <laughs> inspiration. Nietzsche, the philosopher, uh, despised Christianity because he felt it exalted the weak through, you know, the picture of Christ on the cross and serving people. And he was all about power and might is right. And, and, and Hitler thought that was just wonderful. So the problem here is that the baby is defenseless uh, and all the power is with the mother or the mother and the father. And um, in any other situation, for instance, you know, there are laws so that you don't, you're not allowed to walk into a school and, and kill children who are defenseless and you've got an automatic weapon in your hand. But that's what we're doing with abortion. We're allowing people to walk in with lethal weapons and kill the defenseless. And so the foundation for respect of all life is destroyed or at least severely undermined. And we reap the consequences of it. And we try to justify it by, you know, d describing the child in the womb as something less than human. But, but biologically, they are human. They, you, and you can't escape that fact. So the only thing you have to come back on is, are they a person by my definition? And, uh, and no one can define that. And Nancy no one Pearson can define goes through this. In the... In the uh, you know, literature behind abortion and, you know, similar philosophies, uh, uh, no one has ever been able to define what a person is. But they would all say, <laughs> the people that are writing all this stuff would definitely all say, I'm a person. <laughs> you know, <laughs> it's like President Reagan made this, <laughs> he had this ability <laughs> to make these pithy comments. And he said, I've noticed that everyone who is uh, in favor of abortion has already been born. <laughs> and, you know, they're persons. They've declared themselves to be persons. It's all very well to look then at other people you have control over. Hitler said, well, right, Jews, the Jews are people in my definition. Well, Hitler held all the power, so he just killed them. But he, he was wrong, absolutely wrong. But uh, his philosophy uh, allowed him to take that position, and he held all the cards in his hand as far as power, raw brute power was concerned. And that is what happens with a mother who aborts uh, her baby for no other reason than convenience. She has all the cards, the raw brute power, and makes the decision to kill her child. And that, and then justifies it by saying, well, I'm a person and they're not. But then when you throw it back and say, well, what then is a person, right? Is it a beating heart? Is it consciousness? You know, is it an ability to move around or respond to stimuli? Well, those are all true of a baby in the womb for a very, very early stage. 
So, you know, a baby has consciousness, a baby in the womb has consciousness. Much as we have consciousness, ours is more developed. But then a child of one or two years old, their consciousness is not as developed as a child of five or six or an adult. But they're still people, they're persons. Yeah, she quotes one one person in this chapter on defining personhood as essentially the desire to live. So an awareness that life is worth living and a sense of agency about pursuing life, which of course... Well, so what age does a child... Exactly. Is a child going to come along and say, well, you know, I really think life is worth living. Exactly. I mean, come on, give me a break. And then what about all the, you know, people who are suicidal or depressed or whatever and who say life isn't worth living? <laughs> You know, that doesn't even make sense. Uh, well, let's, let's talk about Canada then, because... Oh, let's not talk about Canada. <laughs> yeah. And, and I just want to say, too, even if the decision to abort a child, to kill a child in the womb, is made on the basis of proclaimed reasons that are deeper than convenience, even then, it is not reason enough to, to go through with that act. Um, and Nancy Pishy has extensive remarks that she makes in this chapter on uh, the, the role of, uh, of Christianity and the role of the church to uh, continue supporting people who find themselves, women who find themselves pregnant, surprisingly. And, or, and I think she makes the point there are more Christian pregnancy centers than, than there are uh, abortion clinics by far. The and estimation is double. One of the, one of the, the wonderful thing she does is she um, brings together some of the history of the early church. Mm -hmm. Because what we forget is, or what we don't know is, that like what goes around comes around. And, and I talked about uh, how this whole philosophy of mind and body was very much prevalent in the Greek or Roman world. And when, you know, Christianity began to be attacked through the Enlightenment, that those things all came back in again. Well, not surprisingly, when you go back to the world of Greek and Rome, it was quite, a, a, abortion was practiced. And, you know, because it wasn't as easy as it is now, uh, babies were just left out to die. Yes. And, you know, infanticide. So it had, the, the same mentality was there as is present today. And what is fascinating is the way that she documents how it was the church the early church leaders in the early centuries who absolutely prohibited abortion and infanticide and who saw it as an attack, not just against the children, but against women. Mm -hmm. And it was Christianity which elevated the place and role of women, which was uh, de degraded in, in the Greek or Roman world. Mm -hmm. um, and, and she says, you know, really, uh, and, 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 you know, wherever there is selective abortion, it's, it's almost always female babies that are killed. Mm -hmm. And you've got in China, uh, don't ask me what surplus of men in the country over women. And so we, uh, you've got to ask the question, is this really pro-women? Mm -hmm. Is the abortion movement pro-women? And Nancy Pierce says, says, no, it's anti-women. It's violently anti-women and, and what it does to women. Uh, and, you know, uh, whereas Christianity elevates women. 
we get a bad press, but actually it's Christianity that elevates the status of women. Hence so, why so many women were drawn to Christianity in the first century. Yes, because they were treated as persons, so to speak. They were treated <laughs> as human beings. And insofar as there was personhood theory back then, it really was just some people are worth more than others. Mm-hmm. And of course, Jesus came along and said, no, everyone's worth the same and, and is an infinite value in the sight of God. What, what's interesting to me about the, the pro-choice argument is that it's, it's founded upon the right of a woman to choose. And so it's a human, it's a human rights issue, so-called. Nancy Piercy points out um, something that is you know, very commonly talked about in apologetic circles, that there is no such thing as, as human rights apart from, apart from those rights being endowed from a transcendent source. For, for Christianity, it's, you know, it's the, the personal creator, God of the Bible. And she even quotes, uh, what's his name? Uh, Yuval Harari, who wrote the uh, the book *Sapiens*. I don't know if you. I haven't read that, but I've seen it on bookshelves at my local bookstore and stuff. And he, him, and as an atheistic thinker, argues that if you accept that life evolved by material processes, if you are thoroughly Darwinian, that there is no logical basis for human rights. So only through the Judeo-Christian influence on the West do we even have a concept of human rights in the first place, which means that we are arguing against a Christian ethic on the basis of another Christian ethic. The reason that we believe in human rights is because we believe in Imago Dei, that everybody is created in the image of God and therefore worthy of equal dignity. But when you do away with that, you don't really have human rights. You just have, as you said, might uh, versus right or might makes right. Sorry. And so it's just the incoherence is uh, is deeply, deeply rooted in, in the argument. It, it seems to me that there's no way around that on that side of the argument. You no, know, it is. And, and, and that's what Stephen Hawking struggled with because, you know, if, how, how can it be, you know, if the, if the universe had a, a, a beginning that was not explainable by scientific laws, uh, you know, who put all this multitude of scientific laws and all what, what they call the physical constants and so on that caused um, there to be life as we know it. <laughs> it's absolutely stunningly miraculous. Uh, and so it it bears all the imprint of a supernatural mind or of a mind that is bigger than the physical creation, the universe, the cosmos, which is a very strong argument for the Judeo-Christian God, who is a personal creator, creator God, is absolutely in harmony with that. But it is God, through making it us in his image, as you point out, that makes us all human human beings and persons, he gives us and endows us with consciousness and choice and, and our values and so on and the ability to live independent lives. That's all from God. If uh, all we are is a random bunch of atoms that happen to come together by blind chance, which is what Darwin said, and the odds of Darwin being correct in terms of natural selection or random mutation are something like uh, 1 to 10 to the 40th power. Uh, I mean, it's, it's, it's an inconceivable, it's an inconceivably, we're talking about 1 in a trillion, 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 you know, and then some uh, uh, um, possibility that random, uh, that, natural selection and random mutation, as Darwin conceived it, actually produce human life. It's an <laughs> impossibility, um, which scientists are, are now 
you know, acknowledging, and that's why Darwinism is dead. But we've got this materialistic mind view because we deny God, which says that on the one hand, in the lower story, in the physical, all we are is physical, but we rebel against that because we know it's not true. And we, we, and so we create, in terms of the abortion debate, we arbitrarily declare ourselves to be persons and invest ourselves with the right to kill somebody else. And we arbitrarily declare without any scientific evidence, in fact, contrary to the evidence, that the, the unborn child is not a person. We just, we just say that's what reality is. We make, make it up. Where? And there's no basis for it. Where, where does this in fact, in fact, if all we are is a random bunch of atoms, the whole concept of personhood doesn't mean anything. Uh-huh. And neither does the discussion that we're having because there's no meaning. There's no intellectual sense. Uh, there's no <laughs> possibility of rationality if all we are is a bunch of atoms. We have no way of knowing if we're uh-huh. really real anyway. Yes, it's absurd. Yes, yes, yes. And you're 100% right. Um, and just to bring it back from the existential for a moment into the concrete, uh, not that that's not uh, vitally true and important. Where does all this head on a social level, right? Like, if there's no such thing as human rights, actually, like if that's if that's just a total misnomer for what is actually our personal preferences on the basis of survival, if that's the case, then that means that if rights are going to come from anywhere, then the rights can only be given by the state. If you're going to live in any kind of organized society whatsoever, the the giving of rights has to come from a, a centralized power uh, under which citizens are all willing to live. Whereas the state should be there to protect, to use the constitutional term, unalienable rights, um, not decide on them, not give them. Sure, there's all kinds of privileges that can come with citizenship, but basic things like the right to live, those have to be unalienable. And as soon as they're not, it seems to me that that's a train that we hop aboard that that can only head to something totalitarian. Do do you see where I'm going with that in my head? Like I'm trying to think it through. I agree with you. I I think it's it's the uh, worst of all slippery slopes. Because if... If the child in the womb doesn't have the right, then who's to say that some other ethical argument isn't going to come up somewhere down the line and I conveniently or inconveniently happen to fall outside the definition of a person worth protecting or a life worth living. Like that, it really does become quite arbitrary. Right. And and who's to say, you know, there are people being euthanized in, in places like Holland who still think life is worth living, but... They're being overpowered by, you know, for instance, relatives who want their inheritance or, uh, you know, nursing home authorities who want the space for somebody else. Mm-hmm. And they're arbitrarily deciding that person is not going to live. Their life isn't worth living. That's not the person that's deciding it. It's somebody else deciding it. Well, none of us have the right to decide whether somebody else's life is worth living or not. That's the slippery slope because there's no way of stopping it. There's no way of saying, okay, these are the limits we're going to put around it. Uh, (laughs) Once you've accepted in principle that one human being can simply decide that the life of another human being is not worth living, 
which is at the heart of the reality of abortion, then there's no way of stopping. You know, the only thing that's stopping wholesale slaughter of people is some kind of ingrained social convention and sense of right and wrong, <laughs> which is which we've inherited from our biblical roots, our Christian roots. Yeah, for all my classically liberal friends out there, um, but one of the important things that I think Nancy points out is um, that a biblical worldview actually fulfills the highest ideals of liberalism better than any secular worldview. Uh, because of the belief in the Imago Dei, it really does believe in rights that come to us from the transcendent God um, that must be protected and allowed for every single person. Um, and so uh, secularism can't, can't do that. It really does descend into a war of the wills. And as David said, uh, as whoever has the most power gets, determined, gets to determine what's right. And you cannot remain a free society uh, with that kind of setup. So it seems um, that that's already affecting millions of people in our in our day and age, the unborn um, alone qualifying for that number. And it, it, it doesn't seem outlandish to think that if that train keeps allow, being allowed to go in the direction that it's headed, that it will, as you just pointed out, start to include other people as well, such as the elderly um, and who knows who else. I'm not being alarmist. Um, I'm just thinking through the, the logical conclusions of the worldview. Um, so yeah, it's not, it's not great. It's not great at all. Any final thoughts from you, sir? Oh, I think we've covered all the bases. Uh -huh, uh -huh. Okay, cool. Uh, if you haven't read this book, I encourage you to grab it. It's stimulating. It's thoughtful. It's well-argued. Nancy Piercy's Love Thy Body. And, uh, you can read along and next week we'll chapter, tackle chapter three, um, where I believe she does dive into, um, the topic of eugenics. If I'm not mistaken, I could be wrong on that, uh, but we'll find out when we read it this week and discuss it on next week's episode. Thank you all for listening. We love and appreciate you and pray you have an amazing week. God bless.